October, uh, we're going to have the annual church picnic. Alan, does anybody have any sign-up sheets back there yet? We need to get some sign-up sheets back there like three days ago because that's a week from Saturday, and um, it's running up on us. So we need some sign-up sheets on things that are going to be what people are going to be bringing for the picnic. That's a week from Saturday on October the 12th. Then the following week, we have uh, on the 17th, we're having the Stand With Us teen event at Beth Yashurn at 7.30 or 7 to 8 in the evening. And we will be having Bible class here. I'm going to probably be over there for a brief time at the beginning and then probably get here just in time for class. Then we have the men's prayer breakfast on the 19th, and then we'll be having a uh, Stand With Us uh, Israel event on Sunday evening at 6.30 on the 20th. And I think that just about covers everything we've got going on. And then Grace Bible Church is hosting a uh, DM2. That's Discipleship Ministries something or other conference at Grace Bible Church. That's supposed to be really, really good. Uh, they're going to be covering Romans. It's an all three-day, all-day event. So if you're interested in that, you can ask. Jeff Phipps is aware of that. He's helping uh, with sponsoring that. I don't think there are any other uh, pressing announcements right now. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful. Excuse me, I just jumped right into the prayer. Well, I have a silent prayer first, then I'll pray. Father, we're so very grateful we can come together this evening. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have given us your word and that we have a, the opportunity, the freedom to study it. And Father, we pray for our nation especially there's such tremendous turmoil, there's such opposition to truth, there's such uh, fragmentation and polarization today, and Father, this just leads to further and further um, division and antagonism, and just a complete bre- breakdown of civility, because uh, Scripture says, unless two are agreed, how can they walk together? And in the founding of this nation, people were agreed on the fundamentals, and today people people are opposed to one another on the fundamentals. And, and Father, the only way we can come back to harmony is to base that upon your word. And we do pray that you would continue to raise up men who will proclaim the truth, and we pray that there would be a positive response to that, for that is the only hope of this nation. Father, we pray for us that we might be faithful to your word faithful in our study of it, faithful in our application of it, and that by your grace we might be strengthened in our spiritual life to grow and to have an impact on all around us. And, Father, as we continue our study in Acts, we pray that you might help us to understand these things, that they're not merely issues of of academic interest, but they radically impact how we understand uh, the meaning of your word and how we determine its application in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. I want to cover a few things from last time, and depending on how long it takes to get through all of that, it may take us, uh, we may not get very far in Acts 19. Acts 19, starting in verse 11 to 22, is a story about the Apostle Paul, the miracles that were done, uh, through the Apostle Paul, the text is very clear in stating that it's not Paul that's doing the miracles, but God is performing these miracles through him, and they include healing people from disease and casting out demons. And then there's an extremely humorous story told uh, through these uh, uh, Jewish exorcists. Now, they've gotten completely immersed into paganism and magic, and so they were probably kicked out of Israel. And they're floating through the Middle East performing these 
uh, magical incantations, and because they uh, have a uh, some sort of connection to the priesthood, that gives them a, a level of credibility that they're playing on. And they go through this little episode where they attempt, they, they, they hear Paul cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They say, wow, that seems to work better than what we're doing, so let's use his incantation. And so they come along and they say that on the basis of uh, in the, the name of Jesus, they try to cast out uh, a demon, and the demon just says, you know, who are you? I, I've heard, I, I, I know Jesus, I've heard of Paul, but who in the world are you? And then this demon-possessed man jumps on these seven sons of Sceva, and they just uh, beat them to a pulp and strip their clothes off of them and embarrass them, and they have to run naked through the streets to get away, and the whole thing's just a quite a humorous little episode. And um, and so we see this is all related back to the what uh, uh, Acts 19, uh, 8 says about Paul teaching in relationship to the kingdom. So I call this uh, lesson Kingdom Offers because we need to go back and re-examine our understanding of the kingdom again. And then exorcism versus casting out Demons. We could also call this "My Seven Sons." This type, this this chapter has a lot of. You can do a lot of fun things with it, or you could call it "Don't be messing with the name of Jesus." Anyhow, <clears throat> question has come up related to what I taught last time on the kingdom of God. Now, I will tell you this: if your mind is a little bit turned inside out in understanding the kingdom of God, that's that's normal. The t- understanding what the Scripture teaches about the kingdom of God is not easy, and there's a, a, a plethora. That means there's a whole bunch. There's a plethora of views out there on the kingdom. And what I am teaching come, is what you will hear within only within a dispensational, premillennial, pre-tribulation theology. Now, I'm not teaching it because that's what dispensationalism teaches. I'm teaching it because that's what the Bible teaches. When you consistently apply a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. And dispensationalism as a studied theology is relatively new. It was first articulated and really systematized by a brilliant uh, English, Irish uh, theologian, lawyer turned theologian named John Nelson Darby. And that began in the 1830s. And he lived until the 1870s, and it's through that time that he, he really does develop and systematize uh, dispensationalism. And then it goes through a period of expansion and further development under C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Chafer, uh, R. Rubinatori, uh, a number of others within that period prior to, I mean, between the turn of the century and World War II. It goes through another stage of refinement after World War II under the influence of uh, major thinkers such as John Walvoord, Dwight Pentecost, who taught at Dallas Seminary for many years and wrote a massive tome called Things to Come, Stan Toussaint, who taught at Dallas Seminary. It wasn't restricted to Dallas Seminary. There were a number of others. Clarence Larkin was in the World War I era, his book, Dispensational Truth, with all the many, many illustrations and charts, is well known to many people. There were, there were numerous others. In the early 80s, there was a, ch- a shift occurred. What happened within dispensationalism is the same thing that happened to Israel back in First uh, Samuel chapter eight. First Samuel chapter eight. The Israelites, who were unique and distinct among all the other peoples, because they did not have a king, they had a theocracy, and God was their king. Looked around and got bit by the bug of wanting to be like everybody else, and they said they rebelled against Samuel, who was a, the, a prophet and judge, and said, uh, "We want to have a king like everybody else." And that really irritated uh, Samuel, and he got very angry. But God said, no, it's not. don't take it personally. You're not the one they've rejected. They've rejected me. And so God gave them a king after their own heart. 
Later on, he's replaced by a man who is going to be the king after God's heart. But Saul is a king after their heart. He looks like a king. He's He is uh, tall. He's handsome. And uh, he's a believer, but he is not a very strong believer. And eventually he goes into spiritual revolt uh, revolt against God. But but under uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, their thing was, we want to have a king like everybody else. Well, what happened to dispensationalists in the 1980s is they wanted to have a, have a theology that's respectable by everybody else. They want to be respected by everybody else. And so they start, they, they sort of invented a new development in dispensationalism, which really isn't dispensationalism. It's called progressive dispensationalism. And, and the key issue in this is the kingdom. And so this whole idea of what does the Bible teach about the kingdom is very important. When you talk to most Christians who come or who are taught out of an amillennial, which means a no literal millennial position, like Roman Catholics or Lutherans or Presbyterians, these aren't issues because as far as they're concerned, the kingdom did come in when, when Pentecost came in. The kingdom is equ- roughly equivalent to the church and the kingdom is a spiritual reign of Christ in our hearts. And so this, this doesn't really, the, the issues that I'm addressing would never occur to them to, to, to investigate because they don't have a literal view of the kingdom because they don't have a literal interpretation of scripture. So I've been talking about the kingdom. I've talked about it in terms of the transition message in, in uh, the transition in Acts from the uh, the beginning of Acts. They're still um, in the age of Israel, still in the um, <clears throat> dispensation of the uh, uh, of uh, of the Messiah because he's still coming. He's still teaching his disciples. We read in Acts chapter one. For, for 40 days after after the crucifixion, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And this continues. This is a major theme all the way through Acts, all the way to Acts chapter 28. People are still coming to Paul, and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. In many of those verses, that's all it says. <clears throat> but there are a few places that do teach us some specifics about what's going on with the kingdom of God. And so we have to understand that a little bit and put it into into practice. Now, last week I taught about the relationship of the kingdom offer and signs and wonders. This just added, it didn't change anything that, that I've always taught or that you've always heard. It added another layer of information to it. In the past, most that I've emphasized and that others emphasize is that the signs and wonders gave credibility or validation to the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah and the message of the apostles and validated their identity. As 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, these were the signs of the apostles. But it has a, there's another layer to that, and that is that these miracles were miracles of healing. As I pointed out last time, going to the first 12 verses of Isaiah 61, that were uh, to be associated with the coming of the king, the root of Jesse, okay, a descendant of David. And so it's not associated with the new covenant. It's associated with the Davidic covenant. And so it's associated with the coming of the king and the presence of the king and the message of the kingdom. Isaiah 61 is clear. It is associating all of those miracles, uh, healings and lepers being healed, the lame walking, the blind seeing, all of these things are related to the presence of the king and and the rule of the king when, when he comes. Not new covenant. New covenant has to do with the change of the spiritual life of the people. The Davidic covenant has to do with the establishment of the king and and the kingdom. Now, we all know, and there's not a not difficulty with this, that when Jesus came, it's an offer of the kingdom. This is the announcement of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came along and said the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent his disciples out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we follow that as the message. And in the order of Matthew, as we're going to see in our study on Sunday morning, up through Matthew 11, the way Matthew organizes his material, he just lumps all of these miracle events together 
so that we get just a heavy dose of, of the credentials of the Davidic king, the son of David, and he's healing the, the sick, he's casting out demons, he is giving sight to the blind. Uh, all of these things are going on to validate that offer and the fact that he is the, 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 the Davidic king, the son, the son of David. So this is the first offer. Now, to look at this chart, the way I devised this to help make, make some of this clear is it's a timeline starting about 28. We don't know exactly when John the Baptist started his ministry, but it was before Jesus did. And I believe Jesus' ministry began in 30, and he was crucified in 33. So sometime around 28 to 29 is when John the Baptist showed up on the scene. And at that point, there's the initial offer of the kingdom. It's offered and it's rejected by in Matthew chapter 12. When the Pharisees accused Jesus of performing miracles, specifically casting out demons. I think that's interesting because there are certain parallels between what happens in Acts, I mean, in Matthew 12, with the, because the, the context is casting out demons and what is going on in, in Acts 19 because the emphasis is on casting out demons in the context of Paul's, uh, teaching about the kingdom. So you have the first offer that's rejected and rescinded, and in Matthew twelve thirty-one to 41, it's clear that an inevitable, irreversible judgment is announced on that generation because it's an, an evil and adulterous generation. From that point on, from Matthew 12 on, there's no more statements about the kingdom of heaven being near or being at hand because it's clearly being postponed. The issue is how long is that postponement? After the Holy Spirit comes, there is a second offer of the kingdom. Now, that does not mean that necessarily that that would would, uh, rescind the judgment statement of Jesus. It's just too, too, too clear. I want you to look at a couple of things. Just, um, I don't want to get too sidetracked and go into a lot of detail, but in Luke chapter 21, verse 20, Jesus, this is a section in the, um, Olivet Discourse. Now, the Olivet Discourse is a response to G- the question of the disciples, what are the signs of your coming? In Matthew, the, Matthew leaves this out. Matthew just focuses on the long-term eschatological or the long-term prophetic fulfillment in terms of the tribulation and the end of the tribulation and his coming then. Luke inserts a section that deals with the near judgment related to AD 70, and this is in verses 20 uh, to 23, where Luke says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. Now in between, in, in about 68, 69 AD, tied, when, when Nero died, uh, uh, Vespasian, who's heading up the armies of, of Rome, Vespasian goes back to Rome to become the emperor. When when he does that, the armies that have surrounded Jerusalem pull back to Caesarea, and they they await the you know the change of power in Rome. During that time, the Christian Jews who were living in Jerusalem paid heed to this, and they left Jerusalem. So that, so that no Christians are killed in the final siege and destruction of Jerusalem because they left. That was the beginning of, historically, of the great deep division between Jews and Christians because the ethnic patriotic Jews in the land viewed the Christians as being non-supportive of their cause against Rome. But see, they, they, they were hating each other too. They were so divided. They were, they were attacking each other. The different factions were attacking each other. While the Romans were breaching the walls, they were killing each other while they were killing Romans. It was just so fragmented. It was, it was, it was horrible. But, um, <clears throat> but that's what this verse 21 is describing is that 
It's not talking about the fleeing when they see the signs of the abomination of desolation. That's separate and distinct in, in Matthew. It's not part of this. This is this is the near fulfillment, uh, the near issue in verses tw- Luke twenty one twenty to twenty three. It says these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written might be fulfilled. The desolation on Jerusalem is prophesied here by Jesus. It's very clear that that there's going to be that inevitable, uh, irreversible judgment on Jerusalem. The issue is what's going to happen next. Now, in Acts, you get a very clear second offer of the of the kingdom, the second offer uh, to the, and it's expressed also in the whole principle from Roman, Romans one sixteen to the Jew first, Acts two thirty seven to forty. Peter is very clearly making an offer uh, uh, to the Jews in terms of his language there, and also in Acts chapter three verses nineteen to twenty one where he says that they are to repent, which goes back to the terminology of Deuteronomy 30. These are very, these are, these are, the language is very much shaped by the language of the, of the Old Testament. And he says, repent and be converted. And the word there really doesn't mean convert, it means to turn. It's the Greek word epistrepho. Uh, repent, change your mind, and turn. It's an equivalent to the Hebrew word shuv, which is teshuvah, was a form of it that's used in Deuteronomy 30, stating that when they turn back to God, God will then restore them to the land. Restoring them to the land is what happens when the kingdom comes in. Okay, so in Matthew 3.19, Peter says, Repent and turn, that your sins may be blotted out. That's personal justification and forgiveness. So that's the personal application of their, their turning so that your sins may be blotted out, and secondly, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, this is a really interesting verse because this idea of the times of refreshing and that terminology is used in Isaiah 28.12. Now, this is where you end up connecting some, some dots. I don't want to lose you too much, but in Isaiah 28.12, it uses that terminology that the teaching of God about the refreshing is what that generation that Isaiah is is condemning what they've re- that's the message they've rejected it's a message about the kingdom and the judgment that's stated that will come upon the Jews for that rejection is stated in Isaiah 28:11 and Isaiah 28:11 says that because they've rejected this they're going to hear uh they they're going to hear the message in other tongues that's the verse that Paul quotes in uh, 1 Corinthians 14 to show that that tongues is a sign of judgment to Israel. So it, it connects those dots that that tongues as a sign was a sign of judgment to unbelieving Jews. So what I'm saying is it's very clear there's this offer of the kingdom, its postponement, its rejection and postponement, and but it's conditioned upon... Uh, something in the future. And that condition is, on the human side, is on Israel's turning. That is the, that is the condition. And so that's a contingency. Now, I want to go to the next chart that I put up here. This is dispensational views on the kingdom. These are three views. The first two are pretty much traditional dispensationalism. There's not agreement on this. And it's interesting to look at this, how this has worked itself out and what the connections are. The first view I have here on the left is that the kingdom was offered, rejected, totally postponed, but there, the, the significant thing here is this group interprets Matthew 13 and the parables because after, after the kingdom is rejected and Jesus announces the judgment on, uh, with the, on, in terms of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit upon the Jewish leadership in Matthew 12, in Matthew 13, he starts to teach in parables to veil the truth so that only his, his, only believers will understand him. Now the trouble is the text says that he's teaching the mysteries of the kingdom. Now there are some who take it as he's teaching a mystery form of the kingdom. The implication of that term terminology is that that would mean we're in some form of the kingdom today. Okay? 
But this group of dispensationalists says that there's no mystery form. The mysteries of the kingdom is previously unrevealed doctrine about the kingdom. It's never been revealed before, but that there's this postponement and that there's going to be an inter-advent age, the church age, that's going to come between the crucifixion and the beginning of the kingdom. How long that period is, no one knows. At the time this is written, they're still in a time, they're all writing at a time when the temple is still standing and they have no clue. It could be months, years, or just a couple of centuries. Paul thought Jesus would return in his lifetime. So they have, they don't have a sense that this is going to go very long. So those who hold this view, this is what's interesting. I haven't done an exhaustive study of this. I've only just, these are things that I've observed in listening and studying and recognizing these things. Those who hold this view generally also hold to a second offer of the kingdom in Acts. Now, none of them believed that, that somehow if the Jews had responded to this message in, in Acts, that A.D. 70 would not have occurred. Not one person believes that. So don't, don't get confused on that. They all believe that, that as far as the judgment of A.D. 70, that was set. But see, the, what happens in the subsequent decades after A.D. 70 is not that the Jews are all taken from the land. It's not like in, 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 um, in 586 where they're deported there is still a massive Jewish population in the land. And how do we know that? We know that because some 60 years later, there is a second Jewish revolt under Bar Kokhba, and somewhere between 500,000 and 750,000 Jews are killed. Okay, so there's still a large presence of Jews in the land after AD 70, which means that in a, in, a, in, in a sense, if there had been a turning, something different would, would have occurred after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Okay, this is the first view. No mystery form of the difference. That's what distinguishes that view. The second view, and in terms of theologians, it's really hard to identify a lot of uh, theologians on this because this isn't a question they get into. Although there are a number of articles written, Stan Toussaint at Dallas Seminary would be one in the first category. Arnold Fruchtenbaum's in the first category. Randy Price is in the first category. Tommy's in the first category. These are, they've all written it in this area. In this second category, the offers rejected, totally postponed, and we're currently in a mystery form of the kingdom. Now, those who hold this view generally do not believe that there's any kind of second offer in Acts, and that would be people like Dwight Pentecost. He's one of the few that I know that's even addressed that. But he and Stan Toussaint, who office next door to each other at Dallas Seminary for probably 40 years or more, argued about this, debated about this for years, because Toussaint said there's a mystery form of the kingdom. I mean, Pentecost said there's a mystery form of the kingdom, and Toussaint said, no, there's not. There's no form of the kingdom today. It's been totally postponed. That's my view. I don't see any form of the kingdom today. That's why I, I tend to deal, like most of those who take that position, with a legitimate second offer of the kingdom. What makes it legitimate is that there's a real opportunity, just like the first one's legitimate, there's a real opportunity for Jews exercising free will, looking at the signs and wonders to say, golly gee, like a lot of them did, this is, these are the signs of the king and the kingdom, and we're going to accept Jesus as the Messiah. But not enough of them did. It didn't make a, a, a difference. So <clears throat> this is the second view which is characterized by, I know, of Dwight Pentecost. I don't know. I know there are others. I just don't know. I haven't gone out and done a massive study of this. And then the third view, this is the view of the progress, so-called progressive dispensationalists. And they believe the offer was rejected and partially postponed so that we are in a already but not yet view of the kingdom. The kingdom is here in some aspects but not it's not fully here, and it's gradually or progressively coming in through the age. That's why it's called progressive dispensationalism. 
Now, Stan Toussaint wrote an article several years ago that came out in Bibsac. That's the theological journal Dallas Seminary produces called It's Not – see, he's interacting with this view of already, not yet. So he called his article, No, Not Yet. <laughs> it's not here in any form at all. And I wanted to read just a couple of paragraphs from what he said because it looks at it a little at, – at this whole issue from a slightly different perspective and brings out something important. He said in the introduction to his article, which really deals with the issue of between are we in any form of the kingdom or not, and he says this article seeks to demonstrate that certain contingencies, that's a key word, is there real contingency in the plan of God or not? Now, if you're a Calvinist, generally you're going to say there's no contingency because God in his foreknowledge determines what will take place. Foreknowledge in Calvinism, as we studied back in Romans 8, is determinative. God doesn't know all that is knowable, all that coulda, woulda, or shoulda happened. God only knows what he determines will happen. That's the determinism in much of Calvinism. There's no real contingency. There's no real possibility that, oh yeah, they could have done, they could have done things or responded differently. So Toussaint says this article seeks to demonstrate that certain contingencies exist for the coming millennial kingdom. Contingencies that show that the kingdom is not present today because when Israel rejected Jesus, the kingdom was postponed. These contingencies include three things. These are what's important. The sovereignty of God. Anybody know what's in the sovereign will of God? Don't raise your hand. But Oh, that's right. We don't have mental institutions anymore. You're not in trouble. We don't know the sovereign will of God. It's not. We know the revealed will of God, but we don't know his sovereign will until it happens. Okay? Or unless God tells us what is definitely going to happen. So nobody knows the sovereign will of God. The influence of the Spirit of God. We don't know that either. See, that's God's domain, and that's within the secret counsels of God. And then the third contingency is humanity's responsibility for repentance, especially, he says, Israel's responsibility for, for repentance. Mankind doesn't know what's going on in the mind of God except for what God has revealed. But what God hasn't revealed, like when is the rapture going to occur? We don't know. That's in the secret counsel of God. That's determined by his sovereignty. He goes on to say, these things were detailed, that is, these contingencies were detailed by the prophets, especially Ezekiel and Haggai, and were confirmed in extra-biblical literature and in the Gospels, especially Matthew. They were affirmed in the historical record of Acts and are still anticipated as exemplified in Romans. Because these three contingencies have not yet been met, one can affirm the future of the kingdom by the words, no, not yet. In other words, because Israel hasn't repented yet, the kingdom can't come. The kingdom can't come until Israel repents. That's, that's it. That, that's the, from the human side, that's the only determinative thing. So he says the word contingency does not mean that the fulfillment of God's promise to establish the millennial kingdom is uncertain. It doesn't mean we don't know it won't, will happen. It means that the timing of the fulfillment is based on these three factors. And of those three factors, the only factor that, that man has any measure of control over is Israel repenting. So these are the three contingencies, the sovereignty of God, the influence of the Spirit of God, and this last one. That's why there's still an offer of the kingdom. And in some sense, it's still out there today, although that it, it's not in the sense it was in Acts, because... The, the, you go through this transition period, and that's the only thing that ultimately explains all the issues. Now, some people may say, well, how could God make this offer when he's already announced the inevitability of judgment? How could God make an offer of the kingdom? Now, this is an important question because this is the question that I've had several people ask. How can God make a legitimate offer of the kingdom and when he's already announced uh, the, the judgment in 70 A.D., very simple. Just read your Bible. Jonah, 
It's already been said and done. Jonah chapter 3. Jonah began to enter the city of Nineveh on the first day's walk, and he cried out and said, In forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the message God gave Jonah. Forty days, God's going to destroy the city. He didn't say, unless you repent. There's no contingency in Jonah's message. He said, in 40 days, this city's going to be destroyed, period. What did the people do? Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The king orders everybody to quit drinking, eating, doing anything. We've got to get on our knees before God. And what happens in verse 10, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, does that mean that God would have rescinded the, the judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70? I don't think so. That's one option. But I don't think that's the best option. I think the best option is because of the prophetic statements Jesus made that that had to happen. Then, but if that generation had responded even to that judgment by saying, okay, we're going to turn back to God, then a different scenario would have unfolded afterwards because there was nothing that talked about how long the period would be between that destruction, that destruction and the return of Christ. That was, there's nothing there. It could have been a short time. It could have been a long time. And that's as far as we can go with it. But if you don't do that, then you don't have a real offer of the kingdom and you don't have a legitimate offer of the kingdom in the in, in Acts. And if you don't have a legitimate second offer of the kingdom, you probably don't have a really good understanding of the, the kind of king, the offer and the postponement of the kingdom or the kind of uh, teaching on the kingdom. So when, when the, Paul comes along and he teaches on the kingdom, he's teaching, same thing Matthew's doing in Matthew, that the king came, the kingdom was offered, the Jewish people rejected it, because they rejected it, judgment is coming. Judgment could judgment in terms of a long-term judgment and the eventual arrival of the kingdom is now contingent upon one thing from a human viewpoint, and that is the Jewish people have to repent and turn. Same thing that Peter's preaching in Acts 3.19. Until that happens, the kingdom isn't going to come. And that's the focal point of his message. And so this relates to signs, and and this is a major issue in the ministry to Jews. In John two eighteen, Jesus the the Jews asked Jesus, "What sign do you show us since you do these things?" This is early in his ministry. All through his ministry, they're saying, "Give us a sign! Give us a sign! Give us a sign!" Jesus says, "This uh, wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but the only sign I'm going to give them is a the sign of Jonah." Which, who was in the fish three days and three nights. In John 2.23, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry, the first Passover, during the feast, many people believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. There's a big emphasis on signs all through Jesus' ministry. John is the gospel that capitalizes on those. But there's an emphasis on, on signs. In John 3.2, Right after this, the first Passover, during the time Jesus is in Jerusalem, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why do they know this? Because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's really clear that those signs said something about who Jesus was. And how does Jesus respond? What was his response? Unless you're born again, you can't see what? Heaven. Is that what he said? No, he said you can't see the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about the kingdom of God. It's still the early part of his ministry. It's still in that phase where the issue is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the signs are related to the message which is what I was pointing out last time. And this is particularly significant, Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. In some general sense, what, what the Jews were focusing on was they needed to have some sort of sign in order to believe in the Messiah, and they had more than an abundance. 
And Greeks were looking after wisdom, after some sort of a, a rationalistic approach to the gospel. So this is why you have <coughs> signs coming in, uh, and that's why the significance of signs in Jesus' ministry. It attests to him as the Davidic king, and it attests to the nearness and offer of the kingdom that's still being offered all through the Acts period, and it's connected to these things that go back to the Old Testament, casting, uh, removing Satan because he's removed from the kingdom. He and the demons are all removed at the beginning of the millennium. It relates to healing the sick, uh, restoring sight to the blind, uh, healing the lame, healing the lepers, and um, so this is what gets emphasized in Acts now. At the time, now in, in Acts 19.11 in the King James Version, as we get into this section, it's used, it translates it with the word now. It's simply a, a conjunction of transition. We've had a sort of a summary of Paul's ministry in uh, Ephesus at the beginning in relationship to his baptism of the uh, 12 disciples of John the Baptist, and then in verse 8 through 10, there's sort of a summary about he began in the synagogue reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God during the first uh, three months and the response to that. And then he set up the, the school of Tyrannus that was continued for two years. So this is a an overview, a flyover of his two-plus years of ministry in Ephesus. Then 11 starts to zero in on some specific events that occurred during this time, we're told in verse, verse 11 and 12 about the miracles that were performed by, by Paul. Then in verses 13 through 20, we're told about this humorous event related to the uh, magical uh, arts of the exorcists of the seven sons of Sceva. And then in verses 21 uh, down through the end of the uh, chapter, we deal with this riot that occurred uh, because of the, uh, the, the the union of silversmiths was getting their business was being uh, cut into because of the influence of Paul and Christianity. So we read here in nineteen eleven and twelve. Now now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, unusual powers, dunamis, uh, so that. Even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left him, and the evil spirits went out of him. Now, it, this sounds to us almost magical, but the scriptures make a difference between magic and the power of God. And this is a scene that is very similar to a scene in the life of Jesus. And, and Luke has made it clear back in Acts 5 with, with Peter's healing, he raises Dorcas from the dead, that Peter's, the miracles performed by Peter in Acts 5 are parallel to miracles that Jesus performed. Why? Because they're doing, the, they're carrying out that ministry of proclaiming the kingdom. At that time in Acts 5, I pointed out we're still in a predominantly Jewish church. At, I mean, at, and by Acts 19, it's still within a Jewish context. And so it's very similar to, to the fact that Luke says, see what Peter does? It's parallel to what the Lord did. He is carrying out the same ministry that the Lord had. And the same thing happens here with Peter. In Luke 8, we have an episode of a woman who has some kind of, of ongoing hemorrhaging. Uh, in Luke 8.43, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and couldn't be healed by anybody. So she's just absolutely miserable. This condition's been going on for, for over a decade, and nobody can help her. And Jesus is coming. Jesus is there, and she's heard these stories about how Jesus is healing people. So she has a measure of humility, and she has a true faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and she she comes up behind him, and all she does is touch his garment, and immediately she is healed, immediately. She doesn't have to go home and lie down and wait. It's not a process. It's not progressive healing. It's immediate. And immediately Jesus knows 
that something, somebody touched him. And in verse 45, he says, who touched me? Everybody around him denies. There's a big crowd pressing in on him, and she had just kind of wiggled through the crowd and touched his garment. And uh, uh, Peter says, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? Are you crazy? How can we figure out who's touched you? Everybody's surrounding you. And in verse 46, Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now, when the, verse 47, now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. So the emphasis is on that she is trusting him. She recognizes who he is and that he can heal her and tells her to go in peace. So this situation in Luke 8 is very similar to the situation we see in in Acts 19. Now, in Acts 19, we read, Now God worked unusual, or uh, the word there has to do with extraordinary miracles uh, through Paul. And the term there in in Greek, uh, I mean, English translation is by Paul, by the hands of Paul, but it's the word dia plus the genitive. It's through Paul. It shows secondary agency. It's like, how are you saved? You're saved not because of faith, which would put the faith as the cause. It's not because of the hands of Paul. Paul isn't the origin of this. You are saved by grace through faith. Same grammar, dia plus the genitive. It indicates secondary means the instrumentality that's used. So Paul is just a conduit of the healing power of God. Paul is not the source of the healing. We don't elevate Paul or worship Paul because he healed people. He is just a conduit. He's just a messenger. And his the miracles performed here were extremely unusual. He didn't do this every place he went. There was something about the context of Ephesus that made it significant that he does this. Now, what we learn about Ephesus at the end of the chapter with the, with the episode with, Di, uh, with Artemis of the Ephesians, Diana of the Ephesians, is that this is a, a culture that is immersed in the occult. It's immersed in the whole concept of pagan magic and power and incantations and all of these kinds of things. It's immersed in in what we would call today uh, witchcraft and the dark arts. In contrast to that, we have the miracle, the miraculous power of God, the genuine healing of God as it is expressed through the apostles. And so just like Jesus in this situation, Paul is conducting more uh, uh, more miracles than anywhere else. Uh, he performs some miracles in a few other places, but it's, it's unique and distinct. Nowhere else were we told that things like this happened with Paul. Even to the degree, verse 12 says, that handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So just like the woman who comes up and just touches Jesus' garment, it's not that the garment heals her. You know, we get this kind of, that, that's where magic comes in. It's understanding that they're, they're touching, they're looking to the person, and the clothes and the garments are connected to the person. And uh, so that it's an act of faith. It's not that that they're thinking, oh, we're going to get magic power from these things. And there's two things mentioned here. The first is handkerchiefs, translated handkerchiefs from the Greek word sudarion. And the second is aprons, which is semikintheon. There's a lot of discussion about what these are. The, 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 the handkerchiefs were probably various sweat rags. He's working uh, as a tent maker while he is in uh, it, there. So this would just be his the work clothes that he has, and they don't have air conditioning. And so when you don't have air conditioning and you're in uh, Turkey, if it's in the warm weather, you're going to sweat. 
And so these would just be the various, you know, rags that he had. The aprons would just be more or less a, a apron or a kerchief that he would wear uh, around his robe so that that would not get, get stained or he would not get anything on it in terms of what he was working on. So they just wanted to touch him. And, and these were his clothes. And so they, they would take even his clothes and they were brought from his body to the sick. They're trusting in God. This is just the intermediate means by which they're accessing the healing power of God in this stage of the early church. This early church still had the presence of the miraculous and the sign gifts. And they're attesting to his apostolicity. They're attesting to the veracity of his message. And they also seem to always be associated with this kingdom message. The other thing we learn from this has something to do with the whole issue of demon possession. When uh, he says that they, they brought the handkerchiefs and aprons and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, first thing, the, the Bible, whether you're talking about the Gospels, or whether you're talking about Acts, the Bible does not talk about disease in terms of demon possession. Liberals love to do that. See, they're primitive. They're, they're just attributing disease to the spirits. The Bible always distinguishes these as two separate issues. Illness on the one hand, now there were some illness that could have been produced by demon possession, but they're not saying that illness, they're not attributing a superstitious cause to all illness. So there are two issues here, disease and also those who are demon-possessed. And what happens, what's the solution? The demons leave, they go out. It's the Greek word ek peruomai. Peruo means to go or proceed. Uh, erkomai means to come. We'll see that word in a minute. Erkomai means to come or go. And peruo is somewhat of a synonym. So this is, he's casting out demons. Then we get to the little fun story. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now, now, th- according to the literature that I've read, there seem to be some apostate Jews that would travel through uh, the Roman Empire and they would trade on their... Uh, the fact that they were Jewish as if it was some sort of mystical, magical thing, and they would have these magical incantations for healing and for casting out demons. Uh, technically, exorcism. This is the only time this word is used in the text. The noun is the word on the left, exorcistes, and the verb is... Uh, the root verb is horkizo on the right, which means to uh, swear or to swear an oath uh, or to uh, uh, implore someone to do something. Uh, exorkizo is also a verb. That exorkistes is, is the, the, where we get our word exorcism. This word is used rarely in the Bible, and it is never, ever, ever used of anything that Jesus and the disciples did. Never. They never did an exorcism, not one. Now what happens is you see a lot of people, they see the word exorcism and they apply it to Jesus, but the Bible doesn't. And if verbal inspiration means anything, Jesus never exorcised a demon. He cast out demons. That's the word that's used again and again and again, and it's called, the word is ekbalo, to throw something out or to cast something out. And that's the only word that's used of the disciples in Jesus, but the magical uh, the the magical exorcists always were called by that word exorcist, and that word does not refer to anything legitimate. It's always some sort of pagan magical activity. So these itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to imitate Paul. They showed up one day. They saw Paul cast out a demon. They went. They heard him say in the name of Jesus. They thought, Hey. They, he did a better job, a quicker job than we've ever done. His incantation is better than our incantation. 
And the idea in, in paganism, and if you've ever read New Age literature or any of the literature on, on channeling spirits or any of that, that stuff, or what you get in the charismatic movement in terms of casting out demons, you have to get the name of the demon. That's rule number one. Start talking to the demon and ask the demon to give you their name. The only time that, that Jesus did that was in the episode with the Gadarene demoniac. And that was to indicate that, show that there was more than one demon inside the, the demon possessed man. It wasn't to gain power over him because Jesus was already more powerful than any demon. But this is the idea in paganism is you have to know their name and if you call them by their name then you have power over them. And it's all about power. So they figured out that, that this little magical incantation of Paul's was better than the one they had so they're going to use it. And so they called, uh, they, they decided, we're going to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they said, we exercise. Now, that's how the New King James translates it, and it's the word horkizo, meaning we implore you, or we command you, or we swear on an oath that by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, Caruso there, meaning the one whom Paul proclaims, so they're doing this, and and also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest. Now the word there for chief priest is similar to the, is the same word used for a high priest, but there's only one high priest, and he's in Jerusalem. And so there's there's a couple of different things could be going on here. First of all, they could just be making a fraudulent claim. They're so involved in pagan magic that they probably were kicked out of of uh, of Judea for their apostasy. And so they're traveling around and practicing this. Uh, so they're either making a straight fraudulent claim that they're, that they're related to the priesthood, or maybe they're from a priestly family, and they're just making some sort of claim because they've got a family connection to the high priest, uh, or they're just seeking credibility through some sort of association. We don't really know, except that they're really out to lunch. and uh, But they're not a legitimate priest doing the legitimate priestly function. So there's Sceva, and he has seven sons, and they're going to do this. They, and they find this guy that's demon-possessed, and they're going to go into his house, and they say, we implore you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Uh, well, I record that. Verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said, wait a minute, I know Jesus. I've heard about Paul. Who are you? It has no impact on them whatsoever. Now, it's interesting how there's two different words here that are used for no. Both translated the same in English. Uh, Jesus, I know. Gnosko, I, they, they knew who Jesus was. And epis, epis, epistami is used of Paul. Paul, I know. I'm familiar with him. I ha, they, they were aware of him. Uh, and they'd say, but who in the world are you? Why should I listen to you? And immediately the man in whom, notice that word, in whom, tells us once again that demon possession is when a demon is, it takes up residence inside the body of someone. It's not on whom, around whom, through whom, by its in whom. The evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, the Greek word there is tromizo, where we get trauma, traumatized. And it means they, they just just beat the crud out of them and ripped off their clothes so they had to flee from the house. Na- na- oh, wounded is a word for traumatizo. Naked and wounded. Naked and wounded. And they, have to, they, they run from the house, so it's totally embarrassing. And this became known both to all the Jews and Greeks, dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and as a result, the name of the Lord was magnified. So it becomes clear that Paul's message is validated and attested to, even by the people who are against him. And many who had believed confessed and came telling their deeds. Now let's look a little bit, I want to look at these words here, because I want to clarify this distinction and this may be a little hard to see, but I needed to get all this chart on here. You have different terms for demons. In Luke 4.33, it's called an unclean demon. In other passages, you also have the term unclean spirit. What, how, did he, how did it get removed? The command was to come out, and we're told that it came out. Ex ercomai. 
Erkomai is a Greek word that means to come or to go. The prefix is what's important. Ex means to come out of. Ace means to go into. So if you're going to go in the house, you're going to ace Erkomai. You go into the building, into the house. If you're going to go out of the house, you exit. You ex Erkomai. In Luke 8.2, there's the mention of evil spirits that are cast out of Mary Magdalene. She, they're called evil spirits and demons, and they had come out of her ex Erkomai. You never see exorcist anywhere in here. Luke 8.27 starts the story with the, the gathering demoniac. There's more detail about that one, so that becomes kind of the paradigm or the model for understanding all the demon possession stories because it makes the vocabulary very clear. It mentions, it calls the indwelling spirit demons. There's a plurality of them. It's also called a singular demon. It's called an unclean spirit. Uh, and it said that he had a demon in the Matthew passage. He had a spirit, evil spirit, and he's described at the end as being demon-possessed. This is how we know what demon possession is. It's someone who has a demon or demons inside of them. And the language on the right-hand column, it's he came out. He was going to cast out the demon, ex erkomai. Uh, the demon was going to come out of him. Uh, and it had entered into him and was going to enter, uh, send them into the swines to enter the swines, ace erkomai, uh, and then, uh, the, the demons went out of him and entered into the swine, ex erkomai and ace erkomai. So the language is very precise. How do we know what demon possession is? Because of this in and out language that's used in all of the, all of the, uh, episodes. It's very clear a demon is goes into and comes out of a person. So that's how we're able to define demon possession. So I just have a very quick summary to run through for you because we've taught this quite a bit. Number one, demons refer to a class of fallen angels who invade human history to afflict the human race. The term demon is not necessarily used of all fallen angels. But we could use it that way in a generic sense. It, 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 but it's primarily used to refer to those who are specifically afflicting the human race. There are different groups of demons. There are some today that are uh, in the abyss. There are those who afflict, afflicted the human uh, race in the episode with the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. There are those who are reserved under the Euphrates River in Revelation chapter uh, nine, uh, the 200 million demon army. So there are different groups of, of, of fallen angels. Uh, here we're talking about a specific class of fallen angels that seem to be involved in afflicting the human race. Second, the only period in the Bible of intense demonic activity is during the period of the Messiah's ministry on the earth and the beginning stages of the church. You have a little bit around Saul. Saul is afflicted. There's a demon, an evil spirit who comes upon Saul. He doesn't enter him. He's just influencing him or oppressing him. But you don't really have specific development of a of a demonology like this in the Old Testament. You just have bits and pieces of it. So the only time of intense demonic activity is during the time of the proclamation of the kingdom in the Gospels and in Acts. Third, the term demon possession describes the invasion of a person's body for the purpose of control. That's seen from the terms used, cast out, ekbalo, enter, ace erkomai, to go out, ex erkomai, and ek peruomai. The trouble in English is possession has two meanings, to own or to occupy. They're both there. Look it up in the dictionary. A lot of people think that there's no demon possession because Satan can't own somebody. Or, you know, they, they, they emphasize that aspect of it. Uh, we're not talking about ownership. We're talking about occupancy. That's the issue. And so there's no word per se for demon possess. It's to be acted upon by a demon. But all those other terms are more specific, and they give us the, the specific meaning that it, of entering into for control. Fourth point, church-age believers cannot be demon-possessed 
because their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the word there is naos, meaning the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. And just like nothing could enter into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament except the high priest or they would die instantly, the same thing is true. God protects his, his immediate territory. And this is seen in First Corinthians three sixteen and six thirteen. Now, some people always says somebody will always say at this point. Well, what about in the Old Testament? Well, there's no example of an Old Testament person being demon possessed. There's not a single example of demon possession in the Old Testament. So it's I don't think it's an issue. Some people say, well, what about today? Can a Christian? What, what about demon possession today? Well, I guess it could take place. But there's nothing mentioned in the epistles about it. And the epistles are written to give church-age believers everything they need to know about how to handle problems in the church age. And all kinds of problems are mentioned. Never mentions demon possession. Never mentions how to take care of somebody who's demon-possessed. It never warns Christians that they can be demon-possessed. It's not mentioned. The silence is deafening. And that means it must not be an issue. So if the New Testament ignores it, then we shouldn't get wrapped around the axle about it. Now, does that mean that we believe that, that, that there aren't problems with the demonic right now? Not at all. Ephesians 6 tells us we're involved in spiritual warfare. But the issue isn't demon possession. The issue is thought. It's demon influence. Demon influence describes the influence of demons upon the inhabitants of the world system who think like Satan. To the degree that any person thinks on the basis of human viewpoint, anything opposite from the Word of God, anything apart from the Word of God, any non-biblical system of thought, to the degree that you think on a non-biblical system of thought, you're thinking on the basis of demonic influence. That means we're all influenced by the demonic to one degree or another. It's a wonderful life is just as much a manifestation of human good, evil, as the movie, the film, The Exorcist, or the witchcraft or occult in Harry Potter. They're just different expressions and different forms. I've had people get all upset because I read Harry Potter books. Sure, I don't think the message there is any more or less demonic than the message in a lot of other seemingly acceptable pieces of literature because they teach the world's philosophy. So I can either I can read them as entertainment and keep it separate and not buy into the system, but just because it talks about witchcraft doesn't mean it's I gotta go take that book and go burn it. We'll talk about book burning next time. Because that's what comes up with the occult the and 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 acts, because they go burn all their occult things. We'll come back to that next time. Went over a little bit. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to go through these things again tonight and be reminded of the fact that you clearly give objective evidence in history of your work, of who you are, and of your grace. And as we see again and again, the principle of your, the tremendous principle, you extend grace before judgment. Grace before judgment during the ministry of Christ, grace before the judgment of AD 70, and the continued manifestation of miracles, the credentials of the apostles in Jesus, and the, the continued offer of the kingdom, uh, even though what we see is it just confirms the Jews in their, uh, in their negative volition. Uh, but ne- nevertheless, you gave them a legitimate opportunity to turn, but they rejected it. Father, we continue to pray for us as we live in the church age that we realize that, that the power that was manifested in one way at that time is ours through the Holy Spirit as he empowers us to live the Christian life and to walk according to the truth of the scriptures and help us to implement this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.